On this path, as you no doubt noticed, the word suffering arises over and over again, sometimes many times a day. And one way we suffer enormously, let's, let's just get right down to it, is because of the presence of other people. Of course, we suffer because of the absence of other people as well. But it is a significant arena in which we do have problems. It's also an arena in which there can be, as we know, enormous joy, enormous connection, enormous um, interconnection and sense of, of respect and being respected. And at the same time, it's a complex area for us. Now, naming relationship as a significant area of of, um, suffering is not in any way a New Age idea. This came from the Buddha 2,500 years ago. One of the core classical descriptions of sorrow, of suffering, was being separated from those we want to be with and having to be with people we don't want to be with. You know, it sums up, actually, a lot. (laughs) And the first, of course, means sometimes because of geography, um, families being all over the place these days, and so um, wanting to be with someone, but they're in another part of the country. Sometimes it means wanting to be with people who don't want to be with us, you know, having the desire to have friends that don't want to be friends with us, this kind of thing. And of course, on a deep and profound level, it means that in the best of relationships, we lose the person at some point, so loss of loved ones. And the second, having to be with people we don't want, well, this describes our work environment sometimes. And of course, it can describe some of our family members as well. but I don't need to go into this. You can fill in the blanks there. It is a very difficult area because it's an area in which we find ourselves probably most unconscious. In a way, you could say we work our way up in practice. We start in very small and modest ways, seeing if we can be present with ourselves, just sitting, no complications, just sitting. Having a body, of course, is a complication, but still just sitting. We see if we can be mindful in daily life activities like brushing our teeth and things like that. And we work our way up into the complexity of relationship in which we are speaking and listening and there's another vibrant being in front of us and it's complicated to remain present in the midst of it. We oftentimes lose ourselves and react out of our habits the most when we find ourselves in the presence of another person or in the presence of many other people. So what I want to talk about tonight is how to apply what we've learned here to relationships with others. Now, I'm not at all narrowing this down. Sometimes the definition of relationship these days is really narrow. It means how is your relationship with a capital R, you know, your partner, your beloved, your intimate, your lover, your wife, your husband, this and that. But really, 
what I mean by relationship and what I want to talk about is all kinds of relationships. You know, relationship with the person that you buy the paper from in the morning. Um, relationship as you walk down a busy street and you see a lot of different people. That kind of thing. So including, of course, intimate relationships and um, maybe what you would consider your core relationship if there is one. But all of our relationships, family, friends, work, boss, um, uh, when we read the paper, we're in relationship to people that we're reading about. You know, the whole area of relationship. It might sound a little odd to bring this up in a retreat environment because we're in silence together. So how can we be in relationship? How can we apply this until we get home? Well, actually, in the silence of the retreat, it's possible to learn very deeply about this kind of suffering, about how we can be and learn how to be a a bit more present and awake and a bit more free from suffering, to find the joy and harmony that we know is there. We're aware of reactions without being able to act them out which is not a small thing. We're aware of having reactions while we're sitting to a variety of people, but we can't act them out. We can't, um, in this environment, talk, which is really huge in terms of acting out our reactions. Um, We can't instantly say something. We can't instantly react to someone. We can't instantly do anything. I mean, I don't want to say this as a hard and fast rule because I know probably things happen here that I don't know about. <laughs> but in general, in general, this retreat environment supports a non-reactivity. A lot happens in silence. By this time in a retreat, you know, this many days into a retreat, already um, friends might have become enemies. You know, people that you came here and you you sensed a kind of a connection with. Maybe at this point in the retreat, it's gone away already. Maybe when you first came in and you felt kind of an aversion or a judgment towards someone, just instinctively, not because of anything that they even did or said, but just chemistry or karma. Um, Now maybe you've softened a little bit and there's somebody who's changed a little bit for you. But in any case, at this point in a retreat, most everybody has their group of friends and their group of enemies. (laughs) It's, it's really true. We have those that we're afraid of. We have those that we're inspired by and admire. We have those that we find ourselves judging. We fi- have those that we think that we want to get to know better. We have those that we think that we want to get to know less. We have those that we're indifferent to and uninterested in. You know, They just go by and we're not interested in them. We have those that we're jealous of or envious of. We have those that we've been depressed by. We have those that we're attracted to and annoyed by and irritated with. You know, that's just the nature of relationship. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with this, but I can't really talk about this without bringing up this old kind of thing that someone coined a long time ago. Um, As you know, this is called Vipassana. And um, there is such a thing as a VR, which means a Vipassana romance. It means when you have been drawn to someone and you don't even know what they're like. You could talk to them at the end of the retreat and hate them. No? 
but you're in love, you know? There's an there's a attraction there, a romance that begins in the beginning of the retreat, flourishes, thrives, and then, you know, ends with a thud most of the time. <laughs> and then there is such a thing as what's called a VR meaning of a personal revenge, which is the other, you know? It's when there is um, fear or anger or somebody's not walking the way you want them to walk. <laughs> Or they're moving just so slowly through the dining room. Why are they doing that? You know, they should get out of my way. Uh, why aren't they practicing mindfully with wisdom? You know, moving fast when they need to move fast, moving slow, the way I do when I need to move slow, you know, that kind of thing. Why aren't they just like me, in other words? So Vipassana romance is another thing. So this is, you know, is well-known, actually, in the retreat environment because bringing human beings together, we react. We react. We don't just come together and love one another instantly. You know, we come with our conditioning, and we react. And then we choose to work with that reaction. And that's the difference between a group of beings getting together and simply reacting, and we know what happens out of that, a lot of fights, versus a group of people getting together with earnestness, you know, with the attempt to change themselves. You know, even noticing those reactions, of, of course, wanting to change others, but then always attempting to come back to oneself. It's interesting on retreats, just the um, sense of connection that can be there for the oddest of reasons. I remember on my um, one of my three-month retreats here, um, I had a roommate who had the exact same pair of socks that I had, and these were really, really strange socks. I mean, they weren't like just, you know, a particular color. They were really strange. And so just noticing that we had the same pair of socks and nobody else did, we had this kind of instant, oh, how, how wonderful that we're roommates. <laughs> and then as things evolved, of course, we were in impeccable silence together. But as things e- evolved... Um, she had the job of ringing the bell at a certain point in the retreat. So I had my own personal bell ringer. She would come and ring the bell around the building and then open my door and ring the bell personally for me. (laughs) So there was a really strong connection there. (laughs) It got better after the retreat, too. But, you know, even without eye contact, there's a lot going on here. And I'm sure this is no surprise to you. you Even though, um, we haven't said much about contact, but for those of you who are are new and have noticed the older people putting their eyes down or just not making the usual kind of contact, you've probably picked up on the fact that um, we don't really encourage it because of the idea of being a little bit within yourself while you're with others. But, you know, there are retreats where there is silence and there is eye contact that's encouraged. Many years ago, I I sat a retreat with another group of yogis, a yogic group, actually, authentic yogis. And um, the idea was to have eye contact. So it was five days of silence and celibacy, actually, just like here, um, but with eye contact. And um, it was just remarkable. I mean, if you think that these VRs happen in this environment, it was just a whole other story. I mean, you know, um, staring into people's eyes a uh, long, 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 long time. 
You know, multiple celibate chaste affairs with person after person after person. You know, marriages, divorces. And you could see it all. You know, it's not that I wasn't involved in the gazing myself. But you could also see other people, like stomp away or like try to get close to somebody or, you know, one person and number of people gazing at the same person, waiting waiting for a chance to gaze, you know. There were actually, you know, it's like anywhere. There were popular people. So, so there were people that people were wanting to gaze into, and other people um, nobody was, was um, really even looking at. <laughs> High school reigns supreme in every environment. <laughs> so in, in this environment, there is this kind of activity that occurs with, you know, with human beings, but there is also, as I know everyone has also noticed, the level of internal dialogue. You know, people who aren't here that one is talking to. You know? I mean, the many people, probably if we went around the room, there would be crowds here. You know? <laughs> there would be just numerous, numberless people in this room that each one of us has talked to throughout the time. So the times during the day where we're explaining or we're demanding something or we're arguing or we're describing or we're confiding in, you know, there's, there's many times that, um, particularly for those of you who might be on the new side, but, you know, this could certainly affect the older yogis here as well, just telling someone every moment of your retreat. You know, describing each moment of your retreat. Now I'm angry, and then it changed and shifted, and then I had a really good insight. And, you know, and if we actually did this, I mean, one may still hold the, or harbor the hope that somebody's going to listen to you for <laughs> that amount of time. But, you know, if somebody did it to us, we'd be so bored hearing it. But it's not ever boring to us. I mean, it's so fascinating and interesting. Even if we repeat the same thing, it was this insight, it was this insight, you know, the same insight. We can go over and over it again and again in our minds and still have some kind of a feeling of satisfaction. So we can learn a lot in this environment about being mindful of this area of suffering. We can learn by being aware of our reactions And we can be aware of our perceptions about others as well. We can be aware of how we look at somebody and we think something in particular, and then we believe our thoughts. Now, the ways that we put people into boxes based on very, very little, how they look or how they walk or um, what they say in in an interview group or this or that, we make very strong, we have very strong views and opinions based on appearances, based on um, really not much of anything at all. And it's very, very interesting and helpful to look at this, to be aware of the quickness, how speedy we are to um, form perceptions, and then how easy it is to believe in our perceptions as being obviously true and accurate. You know, we don't always question them. Maybe we have a perception about someone in this retreat, and I was saying, you know, you talk to them at the end, and they're different. And that's an interesting situation, you know, because you can see in this environment that there has been a perception form that you have believed in. And then you talk to the person afterwards, and it's obvious 
that that perception is not a perception to have been believed. And then we can take that and we can apply that to our life of relationships, um, our wide world of relationships. We can begin to see how when we walk down the street, we're thinking this person is like this and this person is like that. And so often, what is it based on? You know, we haven't even spoken to the person many times, and yet we have a, a, a judgment or perception about them. Other times, even in speaking to someone because of not listening deeply enough, you know, we form a particular idea, and then we're shocked when it changes. We're just shocked you know, when the person turns out to be a full human being instead of our cardboard cutout. You know, it's so surprising to us, even though you know, we, on some level, see ourselves as full human beings, hopefully. In practice, not only are we practicing being present within our activities, you know, because a lot of the instructions through the week are to throw yourself in a wholehearted way into whatever it is that you're doing. And there's been just really good reports throughout the week, you know, the thrill of and the insight that comes out of cleaning toilets and, you know, the, the yogi jobs and um, just, just absolute wonderful um, kinds of learning, real insight that has come out of throwing oneself in the midst of activities. But we can do this in the midst of relationship as well. We can actually apply it and transfer it. And if we don't, Maybe we'll be happy while cutting up string beans, but we'll be really unhappy with the rest of the people in our lives. Or we'll be fine for some time when everybody's kind of lined up correctly. But how often does that happen? Yeah, maybe once every 10 years does everything line up correctly. So we do need to bring mindfulness into our relationships. And what this means is the same thing. It's not different. It's really not any different. I'm going to give you maybe a couple of tips or two, but it's basically not very different. It's really practicing staying present, being present when we're in contact with someone, with a human being. And I would say, you know, as well when we're in a fantasy, in a dialogue with somebody who's not there, you really want to stay present to that as well because it's nuts. You know, so just on that level... One wants to know when the mind has, you know, gone, gone round to bend. <laughs> so being aware of the same thing, the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, being aware of the body, and um, if I remember, I'm going to say a little bit more about that sometime soon. Being aware of Vedana, being aware of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, changing nature of the texture, you know, of what is happening When we're in contact with this person, there's an unpleasant um, texture. And then if we're not mindful of it, it turns into aversion, wanting to get rid of that person, wanting to avoid, wanting to withdraw from. Being aware of a pleasant feeling that who knows why it comes up, you know? Why why do we feel one way about one person and another way about another, not based on on facts? So then we feel something pleasant. And then if we're not mindful of that, it turns into wanting and greed and having to have. Um, If we're not mindful of neutrality, there are so many beings in this world that we just don't see because there's no passion involved. There's no, no, no personal anything that we're getting out of it. And so we just, we just actually often don't even see a huge number of beings in this world. And so if we can be aware of our, the neutrality that is there, then 
um, then something can change. Then we can um, be with that being in the way that we would want to in our heart of hearts. We are aware as well of the third foundation, which is sankaras or mental states, which means thoughts and emotions. And this is very difficult in relationship, and it is possible. So, of course, being aware of irritation, being aware of boredom, being aware of um, of desire, being aware of irritation, um, being aware of contentment, being aware of whatever it might be, seeing if we can be mindful and aware of particularly oftentimes our judgments about how the other person should be and how we should be with that person. You know, So it's really a matter not just of seeing the other person, but being very mindful of the judgments about ourselves as well. I should be like this in relationship. I should be perfect. I should try to fix myself. You know, I should manipulate myself so that I am in accordance to what that person wants from me, which is, you know, we're, we're, always, we're always suffering when we're in that stance. And the fourth, of course, is being aware of the laws of experience, so being aware of impermanence, which helps so much in terms of taking one another for granted. Yeah. It helps so much to be aware of impermanence in relationship so that um, we don't take others for granted. I, I kind, of, kind of have this um, eccentric theory, um, which is that we were all around during the Buddhist time together as a sangha, but we're the ones who just didn't totally get it. <laughs> so here we are. You know? Here we are once again. And with whomever we feel a sense of concern about or loving kindness towards or, you know, just, just feeling supported by and being able to support others. Just that sense of so easy to take a moment or a person or a group of people for granted. And when we remember impermanence, it's, it's poignant, but it's also enormously beautiful because then we can show up for that person and we can show up for ourselves. You know, we can do something that is quite actually extraordinary in this world which is that we can really be in reverence with another being if we're aware, if we're mindful. So being aware of how quickly things change. And not just the downside of that, but the upside, which is that there is connection right here and now with whomever you're with. We don't have to take one another for granted and be complacent about our relationships. And it helps us to stay more wakeful when we can remember this. In being aware, in being present, the four foundations of mindfulness, we can allow for an exploration beyond appearances. When we lose ourselves in reactivity and in conditioning, no wisdom is really possible. You know, it, it, we may do the right thing, but it's somewhat hit or miss. You know, it's really not all that reliable if we're not around, if we're not present. And there is also no compassion possible because if we're not aware and mindful and present, we can't help but objectify ourselves and others. We can't help but relate to ourselves and others in the way I was describing before as kind of cut up, cut out cardboard figures, you know, very flat. Um, no heart to it, no 
warmth to it, no being able to see into the suffering that may be occurring in that moment. Mindfulness teaches us to stay still. It really teaches us not to move in reactivity towards or against. It really teaches us the beauty and the possibility of being still, of being quiet. And in this, oftentimes, when we want something for another person, we can turn around and find those very same qualities in ourselves. If we're still and we're aware of our reactivity, if we're aware of the reactions that are occurring, we can turn around and instead of depending on that other person in any which way, we can find the very beautiful qualities in ourselves. And this brings about a huge degree of inner dignity, a huge degree of sensitivity, and it teaches us how to love. A very um, kind of mundane example about this, and it has to do with the foundation of the body, being mindful of the body. A student of mine some years ago, um, she'd been practicing for a very, very long time, and she came to me and asked how she could be mindful in the midst of her intimate relationship because she really wanted to be in this relationship, but she was wildly reactive about just about everything. But there was a lot of care there and concern and love as well. And I suggested that she simply pay attention to the bottoms of her feet when she was talking to this person, when she was in contact with this person. And her reaction was, oh, brother, you know, I've been practicing all these years and you want me to pay attention to the bottoms of my feet. Can't you give me anything more, you know, old yogi-like anything more interesting or, you know, something that befits my old yogi status. And I said, well, just try this for a while. Just try the bottom of your feet. Very diligent, dedicated practitioner. So she did. And, um, you know, for the first year or so, it was really, really rough going. One has to have a lot of long, enduring mind in this, in this practice. It was very rough going. Um, not very much mindfulness of the bottoms of her feet at all because reactivity. You know, this person would say something, she would react. Yeah. And then gradually, 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 um, being more and more able to be aware of the bottoms of her feet. And it really was enormously transformative because she could see that in being aware of the bottoms of her feet, it was simply a way to train herself to be mindful and to be aware of the reactions instead of reacting to the reactions, you know, and speaking and acting out the reactions that then would, of course, bring about another reaction from the person because that's karma for you, she instead was able to stay quite um, stable in her feet in those moments. And it was really quite, it's a success story, it was quite a dramatic change. And um, actually, this is you know neither here nor there, but she recently did um, get married, and um, she said that she was able to be aware of the bottoms of her feet as she was getting married. So <laughs> I thought that was, that was kind of neat. I officiated. So afterwards, she just whispered to me, I was aware of the bottoms of my feet. <laughs> it was quite, quite, but it seems like such a small thing, but you know, it transformed a, a relationship. Practicing in the ways that we are here 
helps us to stay in ourselves when we're in contact with others. When we're sitting with an emotion, when we're practicing being able to sit with an emotion as it is, we have the choice of being able to be more mindful of emotions that arise in the midst of relationship as well. We can see our inner obstructions more clearly. Yeah, in other words, we can use relationship as a mirror to see that which has not been seen in solitude. Yeah? And that is such, a, such an essential and important aspect of things. There's that old story about... Um, um, a man who was on top of a mountain practicing very diligently in a little hut. And he practiced and practiced and practiced for year after year after year after year by himself. And he experienced a huge degree of freedom and loving kindness and compassion for all beings and was extending it out off of the mountain, mountain, feeling, you know, very kind of pleased actually with himself. And then he thought, well, maybe it's time to share my wisdom with others. And I don't want to keep this all for myself. So he decided to start walking down the mountain, and his idea was that he would end up in the village below him, and he would share his metta and his wisdom with others. So he started walking down, you know, being mindful, walking just down the, mi- down the, the mountainside. And uh, someone was coming up, a, a woman with a big um, kind of burden on her back, knapsack on her back was coming up the mountain. And so... Um, He saw her, and she saw him, and they started coming towards her. And then just as they connected, the woman um, uh, got off balance, and what she had on her back fell into his face. So her knapsack kind of fell into his face. And he got extraordinarily upset and started screaming and yelling. And what he realized, of course, out of this was that there were gaps in his practice, <laughs> that he, he, he needed to continue to practice. He needed to be able to see others, obviously, as his teacher, rather than the sense of, of I'm your teacher. He needed to use uh, the relationships with others to teach him as well. And it's what we're all engaged in is, is being sensitive, being aware of others as our mirrors, and letting go of any sense of arrogance or idea that um, it's all it's all over, but to really use relationship as our mirror. There was somebody who named who was named um, Abba Matos, and he was a, one of the desert fathers. Um, one of the brothers asked Abba Matos, who lived alone as a hermit, "What should I do?" My tongue causes me trouble, and whenever I am among people, I can't control it, and I condemn them and contradict them endlessly. What should I do? Abba Matos answered, If you cannot change this, go away from people and live alone, for this is a weakness. Those who live together with others ought not to be square but round in order to turn toward all. I live alone not because of my virtue, but rather because of my weakness. You see, those who live among people are the strong ones. Now, we don't have a choice. This is not as if we have a choice, those of us here. We are here with others, even when, if we practice in a solitary way, we come out at some point, however long that might be. You know, because some people are at this practice in a solitary way, and it's enormously valid, wonderful practice 
to do this as long as one chooses to practice in a solitary way, if that's what one finds nourishing. But one does come out at some point. And then to practice in the midst of relationship is of essence. In this way, we learn how to take responsibility for our reactions. We learn how to be more responsive and less reactive. When we're present, intimacy is possible. And there's actually a sense of being empowered by being able to take responsibility for our reactions. I mean, when we first hear this, it sounds like the last thing we want to do to take responsibility when you did this to me. And, you know, we're sophisticated, so we know probably nobody did this to me. But still, that's how we emotionally react. Certainly, we react in that way. And to be aware to be mindful is a way of protecting our hearts. You know, to take responsibility for our reactions means that we can be responsive to our own hearts, to our own hurts, to our own sadnesses and expectations and ways that we discover our hearts to be. So it's actually, initially, it sounds like really bad news, taking responsibility for our reactions. Ultimately, it's the best news possible because it means that we can be free in the midst of relationship. It's on some level up to us. And it means that we're not as subject to the emotions of others. We're not as pushed around or dependent or subject to, we know how our our emotions change. Well, it's the same for others. And so to not be as subject to the impermanent, Um, enormously at times strong emotions of others, the way that we do this is by being responsive to our own hearts, which means being aware of our reactions. When we're not present, instinct rules. Our past hurts intrude upon the present moment, and we're reactive. We find ourselves lost in habits that we thought maybe were long gone, But here they are again, once again. When we're not present, habits really rule supreme, because we're not around to be able to have any say-so whatsoever. Now, the thing with meditation is we can see the reaction, and then we can choose what to do. We can have a certain experience or a certain strong emotion, and then we can pay attention to it. We have something that is healing We don't have to follow it out to its end and then find ourselves in trouble at some point. We can actually attend with great tenderness to the reaction that is occurring, to the hurt, to the anger, to whatever it may be. When we're not present, we also find ourselves preoccupied. We're lost in our own thoughts about how things are, how things could be, how things should be, how things must be, how things will be, how things have been. And when this is so, when we're not present, we lose our balance. You know, we just lose a sense of inner balance, which is quite essential in life. In being present, It is possible for us to see our agendas, our attachments, our expectations. It's possible for us to be aware of the habitual ways that we speak, the habitual ways that we act, the habitual ways that we think. 
Looking at one's agendas is important to be able to identify what one's agendas agendas are. And you don't have to claim them as my agenda. You know, you really don't want to judge them because they'll be around forever if you do. But to be aware, you know, to be aware of what the agendas are is really important. One agenda we might notice ourselves having, a very kind of light agenda, is wanting to be entertained. Now, thinking that others are alive to entertain us. You know? We can be as boring as we want. You know? We don't have to entertain others, but we feel that we um, are right sometimes with a given person is to be entertained. You can pick up on this when you're with somebody and you're feeling bored. You know? What is the boredom about? Nothing is boredom, is, is boring if you're inside yourself at that moment, if you're aware. But sometimes this just subtle sense can come in of expecting the other person to be perky or entertain you in some way. Um, this sort of fits into this. Mula um, Nasruddin, these are always good stories, Sufi stories. Mula Nasruddin was sitting in a tea shop when a friend came excitedly to speak with him. I'm about to get married, Mula, his friend stated, and I'm very excited. Mula, have you ever thought of marriage yourself? Nasruddin replied, I did think of getting married. In my youth, in fact, I very much wanted to do so. I waited to find for myself the perfect wife. I traveled looking for her. Then I met a beautiful woman who was gracious, kind, and deeply spiritual, but she had no worldly knowledge. I traveled further. There I met a, a woman who was both spiritual and worldly, beautiful in many ways, but we did not communicate well. Finally, I went to Cairo, and there, after much searching, I found her. She was spiritually deep, graceful, and beautiful in every respect, at home in the world and at home in the realms beyond it. I felt I had found the perfect wife. His friend questioned further, Then why did you not marry her, Mula? Alas, said Nasruddin as he shook his head, she was unfortunately waiting for the perfect husband. (laughs) Now we also can be caught in expectations around wanting ourselves to entertain or perform. And it's really important to notice this, to be aware of ways that we think we have to speak when we don't, that we think we have to give advice when we don't, when we think we have to offer something that we don't know about or have to offer or to give, some sense of performance. We can also notice at times the agenda of wanting to be better than, which is competition. Noticing throughout the day, um, you know, maybe one has doesn't have that sense about others. You know, thinking that one is better than, but then about others, this other sense comes in, this wanting to be better than, and so noticing how competition corrupts our relationships. Intimacy is not possible. Connection is not possible. Wanting to be liked, wanting to be praised, wanting to be proved of, wanting to be made complete and fulfilled by another. Now, these agendas and many other agendas might be quite reasonable. I mean, the entertainment one is not. But many agendas that we do have might be quite reasonable, are quite reasonable. Some, of course, are really unreasonable, and in the midst of it, we think they're reasonable. We're lost in delusion. But other times, our agendas are fully reasonable. We may have um, 
the agenda of wanting to be treated with respect, of wanting to be treated with honesty, with kindness, with sensitivity. These agendas are reasonable agendas to have. And we all know that there is there are institutional, systemic ways that beings treat one another in unkind ways because of racism, because of sexism, because of homophobia. Yeah? So in working to dismantle this, you know, this is obviously noble work. And at the same time, to notice our own reactions is very, very freeing. The Buddha said, be in the company of the wise. He said this over and over again, actually, in a lot of the sutras, that um, if you want to be patient, be with those that are patient. You know, If you want to learn how to steal cars, be with those who know how to steal cars. He didn't say that because there weren't cars. But... <laughs> You know, kind of this sense of being with those who are wholesome, who are good-hearted, um, you know, who, who will treat us with kindness in terms of our intimates. And so speaking about the systemic thing, the other, other avenue of this has to do with the personal. You know, in our domestic life, in our life of friendship, this is really reasonable, obviously. You know, it's enormous harm to allow ourselves to be harmed. It hurts our own hearts when we hurt others. And so to um, really expect this is not only reasonable but healthy. However, whether reasonable or unreasonable, the attachment gets in the way of finding a lasting happiness within. And when we are attached to our agendas particularly the unreasonable ones, they become, people become means to an end. We don't see beings as um, there for us to be, to to learn how to love more deeply, uh, to enjoy, uh, to allow for a deeper sense of intimacy. We see people in a manipulative way. You know, everyone as being able to give us something or another. So kind of means to an end. And we tend to divide up beings as being either problems or saviors. You know, one of the two. Either they're problems for us or they're saviors. And then, as I said before, we don't miss the many millions in between because we don't think that they have anything to give us. When our agendas are not met, there is so easily disappointment and anger. There is so easily a sense of withdrawal, of resignation, of discouragement, because the fact is that people do not cooperate with our agendas. This is not should not be a surprise. You know? People do not cooperate in any way with our agendas. If our own feelings and emotions are out of our control, you know, so much more so is the behavior of others, you know? obviously. So it's not that some agendas are not completely reasonable, but the attachment to the agenda is always going to bring suffering, is always going to bring tension, is not going to allow us to look where the true source of lasting happiness can indeed be found. Hmm. This is another little story of Nazaruddin. Nazaruddin was now, this was after the marriage thing, was now an old man looking back on his life. He sat with his friends in the tea shop telling his story. When I was young, I was fiery. I wanted to awaken everyone. I prayed to Allah to give me the strength to change the world. 
In midlife, I awoke one day and realized my life was half over and I had changed no one. So I prayed to Allah to give me the strength to change those around me who so much needed it. Alas, now I am old and my prayer is simpler. Allah, I ask, please give me the strength to at least change myself. And this is, I think, what we are undertaking in the practice of meditation, having an inner discipline, an inner protection of the heart. Being, making peace with the fact that we cannot control the behavior of others involves being mindful of our reactions. It also means being mindful of the difference between attachment and connection. Um, you know, obviously at CIMC we talk about connection and we talk about attachment, this and that, so um, everyone has the language there. Michael and I were walking down a city street one time together and we were holding hands and just walking innocently along. And a yogi came by, um, someone that had been practicing with us for quite a long time. He came by and um, he just, um, all of a sudden, he just, you know, we didn't say hi, he just walked by, walked by, and then he said attachment. And, <laughs> and for some chance I was really on the ball and I said no connection. And then we just completely, we just left. I mean, it was just, you know, both of us doing our own thing. So, <laughs> so this, this whole dimension of what is attachment, what is connection is really important because attachment brings suffering and connection brings beauty. You know, connection brings what the heart is yearning for within our own hearts and in the forms of other beings. Attachment is needing things to be a certain way, not being able to know the Dharma joy I was talking about the other night, you know, knowing an unconditioned joy because of the way other people are. Connection means a fullness of heart, a reverence, a sense of the sacred in oneself and in others. It means a sense of respect with another person, of appreciation, of gratitude, of love, of loving kindness. So we move, we practice letting go of wanting others to fulfill our expectations simply because they can't, simply because they can't. Even in the most wonderful and beautiful of relationships, that person who might be completely attuned to you, you who might just love you so enormously and be very sensitive to your needs, that person is not going to say what you want them to say, you know, at least 20 times a day. Most likely, most likely, in the best of relationships. And so we're letting go of that attachment. We're letting go of wanting others to fulfill our expectations. And the more we do that, the happier we are, and the more harmonious and fulfilling and deep our relationships can be. Instead, we're enjoying the contact that is possible in the present moment. And it allows us to bring a sense of interest in You know, we become interested in our expectations. We become interested in our irritation. We become interested in the ways that we're, we've been, that we feel hurt, you know, or, or whatever it might be. That interest can, can really take the place of the attachment. In letting go of our agendas, there is, there's a sense of the immediacy of life. There's a sense of being fresh and open and awake and tender without being, I don't know that this is the right word to use, but defenseless. No? No. The mindfulness allows us to 
be able to be tender without being naive, you know, without being naive. Mm. So we are open to what happens to us and we are willing to let it go. You know, it's almost like we're a swinging door. We let it in and we let it out the other side. When we are lost in wanting to get, we inevitably lose our sense of sensitivity. And in letting go of our expectations, our agendas, there is a greater degree of sensitivity that is available to us. We're sensing, in other words, we're not lost in our own minds. We're sensing the presence of others. We are letting go of our addiction to pleasure, to only a being with and around that which is pleasurable. Instead of being able to bear with that which is uncomfortable, which sometimes, not always, but sometimes allows us to see a little bit more of our edge in practice. With attachment, wisdom inevitably disappears because connection is lost. You know, we're caught in attachment. There's a tension there, and so connection is inevitably lost. When we let go, even a little bit, we can come to others not as fragmented beings, but as full beings. You know, instead of fragmented beings kind of bumping into each other and everybody expecting something of the other, we can, which is a little bit of a ghost world or a ghost life to have, living with ghosts, if we know a fullness within ourselves, then it's a full human being meeting, connecting with whomever, you know? knowing that there is fullness within that person even if they aren't expressing it or able to manifest it in that moment. And instead of dwelling in self-doubt and in uncertainty, what comes about is a sense of inner confidence. Instead of the effort to try to be good, you know, to present ourselves in a certain way, to be caught on the level of image. Instead of that, we trust in goodness emerging. Some years ago, I was about to sit a three-month retreat on my own in a retreat center, but a self-retreat. And right before this, I had this very fortunate meeting with a, um, a nun, a Zen nun. Her name was Ayami Roshi. She's um, in Japan. And she wrote a really wonderful book called Zen Seeds. And um, so we're just chatting and having this just wonderful time together, drinking tea and enjoying, enjoying each other. And I thought, well, you know, she's a Zen master. Why don't I ask her about my upcoming retreat? So I said, do you have any advice for me in this upcoming retreat where I'm going to be sitting on my own for the next three months? And she, all she said, she looked at me very lovingly, and all she said was, come back more like yourself. And she didn't know me, so this was not based on any particular qualities I had. Now, just come back more as yourself. And I think, I think that that's our invitation in letting go of the effort to be good and trusting goodness emerging. You know, letting go of that identification of I am good, I am bad. You know? But instead, trusting in goodness emerging. Patience with the patterns of others comes from patience with our own patterns. So we need to be aware of our impatience. We need to be aware that in the moment of impatience, that's our practice. Times when we are afraid of being honest with others, in the moment of that fear arising, that's our practice. You know, with every reaction, there's 
always a moment to practice because there are so many reactions that arise. So every time, that's our practice. And you can see that that's the edge of our practice. We can, we can acknowledge, we can embrace, we can accept, and we can let go of. The direction in practice is not towards um, letting go of self-centeredness for the sake of um, other-centeredness or being centered in others. It's also not letting go of being other-centered, you know, focused on others and um, becoming more self-centered. Huh? It's not that at all. It's becoming open-hearted. Huh? It's not dwelling anywhere. It's becoming open-hearted and allowing for a spaciousness of heart. In practicing in this way, there is indeed a gradual reharmonization of the heart. And I'll just end with a very short poem. We get the sense that this is by Rumi, and we get the sense of the, this reharmonization um, of the heart through this poem, I think. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have openness of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion. So let's just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.